I am, as always, Jordan. With me on the show tonight, we have Chris. Yo. Whew, thank God. <laughs> we have Sam. Hello. And we have Rachel. Hello. Uh, so we have uh, four minds, and they're therefore four times the thoughts that we usually have on this podcast when I'm recording it in my own head. Jordan, um, you're, you're just going to gloss gonna... over the relief. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Let's just not explain that at all. I like I like uh, our uh, listeners to understand there's a rich internal world outside of what they experience with the podcast. <laughs> a lot of things happen behind the scenes, a lot of ins, a lot of outs. Guys, the review to be named podcast, fine. The review to be named pre-show, oh my god. Yeah, it is a clusterfuck. <laughs> that is entertainment. Really, we should just release the pre-show and not release the actual podcast. Yeah, like just Wait, like take a we... cl- Aren't we going to release that at the holiday party? <laughs> yeah, Jordan, what's going on at the Christmas party? Yeah, at the Christmas party, we'll play uh, all of our pre-shows, which actually would probably be very entertaining. <laughs> you know what's not entertaining, I bet, though? People listening to us talk about how entertaining our pre-shows are, so why don't we... <laughs> um, today on the show, we're going to uh, do our standard news roundup, which we haven't actually done in a while because um, we've been too busy doing other things. We're going to talk about the... Um, Sad passing of Philip Seymour Hoffman, one of, I think, all of our favorite actors. Um, so we're going to get into that, sort of talk about the man and his work. And we're going to return to the Rename Movie Club and finally discuss Serpico, which has been hanging in the ether out there for a couple months now while we did year-end stuff and then year-beginning stuff and had scheduling difficulties, etc. So it's going to be a packed show. we got a bunch of us uh, around for, for you this week, and I think it's going to be a good one. With that, why don't we move into uh, the news, and we'll start with you, Sam, and your news story. Sure. Is my news story something different than Philip Seymour Hoffman? Well, this is just going super well. <laughs> uh, okay. The the casting of Commissioner Gordon, do I have to like just give it to you? Oh, I don't know we were actually going to go with that. Yeah, um, that, that's one of the few things we discussed. Oh, wow, you guys. Well, just because we just... <laughs> for people who listen to this podcast... We discuss a lot of things that we don't put into the show. Um, are we going to talk about McGruff the Crime Dog? <laughs> Is that going to happen too, Look, Jordan? a thousand pot plants and a grenade launcher. I think you weren't to mention on the show. All right. So now that I know that we're actually talking about this thing, uh, Ben McKenzie was cast on the new Fox show that is um, – it's going to be Commissioner Gordon the teen years, I guess. Or I guess he's going to just be a lieutenant or some sort of lower level uh, street cop Gordon. Um, and we know Ben McKenzie, of course, from the OC and Southland. And Ben McKenzie has a Batman connection in that he played Batman himself in the animated version of Batman Year One, which was kind of a direct-to-DVD movie, which was kind of cool. It had Brian Cranston in it. Um, but I think... The thing, the problem for me I have is I didn't watch Southland and I didn't watch the OC. All I know is that Southland was very, very critically acclaimed and it was kind of this unsung, you know, show that never got really a huge audience and it kind of, I think it swapped networks at one, at one point. Um, it did it with TNT because they know yes. drama. Yeah, they they do know drama. Franklin and Bash, right? Um <laughs> and Isles. Banger Rizzoli. and Ash. I call, yeah, I always call them bangers and mash and ravioli and aisles. Um, <laughs> because Sam is always hungry. <laughs> I, am, I am constantly hungry. Um, so Mackenzie's going to play Commissioner Gordon. There will not be Batman. I am actually very worried about this show. I, can, I think we've talked about uh, when, this, when it was initially announced um, that this was going to be a show. I think we talked about uh, Birds of Prey as kind of like an example of uh, Batman shows that don't have Batman in them. <laughs> Um, and I think, and I think this show is going to count on Commissioner Gordon just being a cop with kind of um, younger versions of villains, from what I can tell. Yeah, it sounds like it's going to be in in the immortal words of Patton Oswalt, sort of like uh, everyone's a kid and they're sad. And like usually, I don't want to watch that show. Um, Rachel, any thoughts on this? Do you like? Do you know McKinsey better than either of any of us? Uh, do you like this, et cetera, et cetera? Well, Those are thoughts you might have. I did not watch Southland, but in uh, hearing about this casting, I was interested to figure out when he stopped being Ben McKenzie of the OC and started being Ben McKenzie of Southland. Um, 
I mean, he's both. He's both now. Um, he's, he's the versatile Ben McKenzie. He's very versatile, that Ben McKenzie. He's a friend of the show. Uh, oh, Ben. Um, you know, I'm not upset about it. I don't know how I feel about a Batman show minus Batman or a Gotham show minus Batman. I guess it has to happen. Um, but I, I'll be interested to kind of see it. Um, and, and, of course... Um, kind of like revel in the the world pre-Batman. I don't know. I I mean, we've talked about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which I have not watched in a very long time. I don't know if anybody else has. Just in terms of how these, like, TV crossover shows kind of work. And I feel like this is one of those TV crossover shows that won't have a crossover. Um, and I don't know how I feel about them. But, I mean, really anything Batman-related... Um, is good for me. Uh, Chris, thoughts on this? Uh, this is like something we've always talked about was that we would be interested in seeing sort of an adaptation of Gotham Central, which was basically the idea of a Batman story without Batman set in modern times. Um, I don't know that I'm terribly excited with this just because of, I think I've long established that I'm kind of against prequels in general as a concept. I just don't really see the need to like really dive into these stories where we know what the end point is. And the end point is a lot of times more interesting than the journey to get there. I think the broad strokes are great to be told in flashbacks, but I'm not sure we can base an entire series around James Gordon's development into the police commissioner of Gotham, especially since this show is probably going to become sort of a look who this person is that shows up here and there week in, week out, like trying to pick out, uh, like a young Oswald Cobblepot or a young Harvey Dent, like showing up from time to time. Um, I just picture the commissioner going on a bumbling date with uh, Pamela Isley. Yeah, I, I, I just don't want that kind of show. I, I, I would be more interested in this sort of um, cop on the street reacting to what Gotham becomes after everything goes off the rails, after there is a Batman. I think that's a little bit more interesting than watching a city devolve to a point where there's a need for a Batman because isn't, isn't the idea that like James Gordon's journey is ultimately a journey of failure in that like, it's only once Batman comes on the scene that he's able to start actually making some real changes in the department. So I don't, I don't know. It, it could be good, but I don't really see the hook at the moment other than that it's Batman related. I'm pretty sure that they should just do it as a Serpico a TV show, right, guys? <laughs> that would be amazing, I think. In fact, I think it would be good just to have a Serpico TV show that you can actually do as a police procedural. Yeah, yeah I can would, see that, yeah. That would probably work, although I guess maybe we can get into that a little bit more when we actually talk Serpico in a bit. Um, Chris, I wanted to, to end with you so we could shift right into your story for the week, which hopefully you remember. I have a story for the week. That's crazy. Okay, so um, they, it was announced recently that uh, the CW is putting in development a uh, pilot for iZombie, which is based on a DC Vertigo series that ran a couple years back. Uh, and the showrunner is going to be none other than Rob Thomas of uh, the fame. Matchbox of, 20 fame? Yes, Matchbox 20 fame. <laughs> the front man of Matchbox 20 fame is heading a show for the CW. <laughs> <laughs> about zombies no uh, rob thomas who is of course helming the veronica mars movie right now and is of veronica mars party down fame um i'm really excited about this because it was a great comic that was kind of had to accelerate its uh super story and gloss over a lot of the potential of the week-to-week business just because the sales weren't great and the creators wanted to tell the story they were telling i think that rob thomas is a perfect fit for showrunner here i think that this could kind of be sort of like a buffy for a new generation if done right and there's a lot of really interesting characters and a great very rich mythology for them to draw on for this series it will work equally well as a kind of case of the week as it will as a season arcs that are building and building as time goes on so i think this is a home run and i can't wait to start hearing about casting news but Chris, you haven't been very confident in the CW's ability to turn around these kind of adaptations before. So is it Rob Thomas's a attachment to the project that makes you think it's going to be okay? Absolutely, because I I mean Well, shouldn't that make you shouldn't that make you think like it's going to go maybe one and done or two seasons and done? <laughs> it's always a worry. I mean, I'll take it. It 
I, I, I'm confident in Rob Thomas just because Veronica Mars, I think, was one of the smartest, most well-crafted shows that ever came off the CW. If you were to just look at it blind, I don't think you would say right off the bat that that was a CW show. It just doesn't feel like their general house style. Um, so it's I, good. I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> but so, yeah, that's what gives me hope that this is going to be something a little bit different than the usual kind of fare that we see from the CW. And it's also a much different tone than sort of like the kind of supernatural shows that seem to be coming out from the CW right now. Although I have to say that I keep seeing reviews of the Vampire Diaries that boggle my mind from Darius sites. So who knows? How so? That it's good. <laughs> people are into that I don't that. know if yeah, I'd go people that, are really far. Into that show. as somebody who watches people a kind of it. obscene amount of CW television just for shits and giggles I don't know if I'd go as far as to call it good but people like it I don't know if it's, it's good it seems, it seems widely liked by look people with taste and Rachel like it yeah. <laughs> oh, but yeah um, Chris let me ask yeah would you be more or less confident in this show if it was being helmed by Brian Fuller instead of Rob Thomas <laughs> Uh, <laughs> we're, we're at, so this is it's a difference between getting one season and like 1.3 seasons right yeah. exactly it, it, these are two two creators who I think everyone on the show at least likes I personally love both of them um, who don't have a high track record of getting their projects past the second season mark let's say um, so as a hypothetical which one do you have more confidence in if they were to take on the show you know I, I feel like Brian Fuller's interpretation of iZombie would just be a little bit too close to what he did for Pushing Daisies. Not that I think the concepts are inherently the same. I just think it's the like too similar a tone there. Whereas I think that Rob Thomas doing it is going to be definitely sort of like a... Um, I think he'll hit the right beats of creepiness and mystery that needs to drive this show. And it also, like, the comic also had, like, a very genuine sense of humor to it that I also think that really suits Rob Thomas's style. I, you know, obviously it's not going to be a guaranteed success. Even the fact that it's about zombies is not going to make it a guaranteed success because I think a lot of people who are going to check out the show are going to be looking for a certain kind of horror and aren't going to find it. Um... So I am just going to hope that enough people have eyes and are on Rob Thomas and are interested in his next project from the buzz surrounding the Veronica Mars movie, whether or not they're Veronica Mars fans. I mean, you've heard the name Rob Thomas a few times I love now, his albums. Uh, enough to watch it and give the show a chance. Yes, I will never his stop work making with Matchbox Rob Funny. Thomas is the lead singer of Matchbox Funny joke. I wish I could. <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. Didn't Rob Thomas do a big song with uh, um, Santana? Wasn't that a thing? Yes. Am I remembering that? Yes, correctly? you are. Yeah, just look up. We'll do a we'll um, do, um, some serious deep cuts on Rob Thomas trivia right now. <laughs> oh yes, yeah. I think it was called "Smooth" yes. from 1999. Just right. like the ocean under I the moon. I remember that song. <laughs> Showing your age, guys. <laughs> We're not kids anymore. Wow. Smooth is a big hit. Which, what was that, like 15 years ago? 1999, so yes, 15 years ago. Wow, I'm perfect. Though, Rachel would be way ahead of the curve on uh, on podcasts. Yeah. She's so. she's always been a trendsetter, our, our Rachel. Oh, yeah. Um. Okay, so I saw me. Definitely looking forward to that. I think we'll probably cover it on the podcast sometime around season three, right? Yeah. Uh, before that, we can we can just... You know, let it flower as Rob Thomas shows are wont to do. Um, with that, Sam, I think uh, you were typing a novel earlier about a news story you wanted to drop in. We can pretend it's breaking news. It's just come across Sam's desk. Yeah, I know. Uh, I have to take my glasses off for this. It's it was just coming um, off the wire by, based on the sound of it. Yeah, off off the wire, whatever that is. <laughs> now we, ha- we have the fucking we internet. Have, uh, we have tin cans <laughs> attached to our houses, and we, we tell each other the news stories yeah. through those. I got a, a mimeograph just ran across my desk saying that uh, AMC has confirmed uh, what had been a highly suggested rumor uh, a few weeks or months ago that um, a preacher television series is in adaptation and it would be produced by Seth Rogen and it will be showrun, which I didn't know before, by Breaking Bad Sam Catlin. 
or Caitlin. I don't know how you pronounce C A T L I N. I'm gonna guess Catlin. <laughs> this is so um, well reported; it's mind boggling. <laughs> We we do we do the the work here. At Game Podcast. We're journeymen. We really we're, do the we're work. We're journeymen uh, journalists. That oh god. I'm just on Twitter. Um, but I'm excited that someone who is such a strong writer, um, he's done some of the best Breaking Bad episodes um, have come from him, and that he's established with AMC already. And it's such a a great source material. It's the best, and it's something that I think kind of is perfectly conducive to television, I guess. We we talked about uh, when this fir- rumor first kind of broke, we talked about how it might be difficult with all of the, you know, religious stuff and the gore and the violence and the sex, how AMC is going to be able to handle this. But I think for the most part, from what I hear, it's in good hands and it is, it's being supported by big Hollywood muckety-muck and Seth Rogen. And, you, I mean, you laugh, but Seth Rogen, I think, has sway in Hollywood Um, and he and Seth Rogen clearly is a fan and he loves the book and it's something probably he wanted to do for a while Um, the the big question is what is it going to look like on AMC and also will it go to series I I I can't imagine it not going it's it's so it's such a good source material and there's so many really great people behind it already um, I'm guessing whatever what the slam dunk will be is I'm guessing they'll probably get one person who might do movies and to be in the cast, and that'll probably kind of seal the deal. Um, but like I, I was talking to Jordan, or I was saying this, you know, when we were talking about this a while ago, I'm really excited to see who is cast in all these parts because there are so many. There are not only a lot of roles for this uh, for this series, but but there are a lot of really, really great weird roles to fill. So in the coming weeks and months when there's more news on this and more casting news, I'm sure we'll talk about it because I, I am very, very interested to see what happens. You know, she could probably do it. I was thinking more if, if there was going to be a woman to play yeah. Jesse, it would probably end up being Kate Blanchett. And, and Tilda Swinton as Cassidy. Tilda Actually, Tilda Swinton would probably Cassidy. be a really good Cassidy. <laughs> I'm only half joking, joking when I say that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she would actually be a really good Cassidy, who's a uh, vampire. Um, but yeah, Catelyn, Jordan, what do you think of uh, you know now Catelyn, the Breaking Bad ties, and now and now that it's you know the network has acknowledged um, well, that this I mean, is a thing a that is probably going to happen. I have my my doubts, but more than that, I have my hopes, uh, and I think. I'm even more cautiously optimistic now that uh, Sam Catlin is involved. Uh, I think we talked about he wrote Fly, which is maybe my favorite, probably my second favorite episode of Breaking Bad uh, ever. So the man's got it. Um, And I I actually think like a lot of the way he wrote Breaking Bad in the episodes he did write seems to see, seems to make me think he's well suited to write Preacher and some of its uh, longer, more monologue moments. And also just it's, it's sort of, western tone i think he could handle it very well so i'm really excited about it uh chris uh i'm excited that um garth ennis himself seems to have like a measure of confidence in the team doing this i mean he's released a quote saying that he really feels like this group of people understands and gets his intention with the work so for me that's good news that i makes me feel a little bit more at ease so yeah i think this is i think this is shaping up to be pretty exciting uh, Rachel, strong thoughts on this? Uh, no, as I have never read Preacher and never watched Breaking Bad, so really have literally oh, nothing. Oh, God, you haven't watched Breaking Bad? I know. You monster. I know, it's on the list. Relax, everybody. Rachel is history's greatest monster, um, which is our, our fourth breaking news story. It's just been revealed. Um, you're hearing it here first. I'm sure the uh, UN sanctions against you will come out any day, Rachel. Why do I even talk to you people? I often ask it's myself unclear. <laughs> Um, all right. I think with that, we can close down the news roundup. Uh, I think we got all the news and more. Um, and I guess that means we have to move into was, a segment that, what? Was the more Scruff McGruff? <laughs> yeah, we did. We did get to drop our, our McGruff. We said it. We threw it out there. We got it out there. Uh. Um, and we have to move on now to, to a segment that I really 
never wanted us to have to do. Um, to the point where when I heard the news of this, uh, Sam, you were the one who, who gave it to me, and I literally refused to believe it. Um, that w And that's, of course, the death of Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, who is an actor that I personally have great love for. I think one of my all-time favorite actors. And, I mean, there's a lot... Of, it, it's hard for me to... Uh, to get the words for a segment like this. This is the second time in a year that we've had to eulogize someone who, who I greatly personally admire on the podcast. And it's something that I, I don't enjoy doing. And, but I feel like we couldn't do the show and not talk about Philip Seymour Hoffman. We couldn't, we couldn't possibly have a conversation about pop culture so soon in the wake of his death without bringing him up. Um, so I'll say, you know, a few words here and then we can sort of toss it around and talk about the man and his wonderful body of work. I think what really impresses me, the more I've thought about it, and I've, I've tried to think about why Philip Seymour Hoffman was such a great actor and why he was a favorite of mine. And I think it's the way he sort of managed to embody every role. He didn't loom large over any of his roles, even when he was a lead. Um, he just sort of embodied them. Sometimes he was uh, a scene stealer, you know. Sometimes he would walk away with uh, whatever part of the movie he was in. Um, sometimes he'd walk away with entire movies, like Along Came Polly, for example. Um, with just the subtle way that he, he managed to command the screen. But just as often he would, I think, sort of seep into the texture of a movie. Um, he would disappear into the characters uh, until he became sort of a, a fact of humanity to be complicated, uh, contemplated. He, he just... He turned all of his his characters into such complex, naughty webs of humanity. They just they all bled off the screen to me, and and I loved him for that. So very sorry to hear about his passing. Um, I will greatly miss him, and I'll stop blathering now and move on. And uh, why don't we go to you, Rachel, and and we, you can talk a little bit about Philip Seymour Hoffman. Sure. Um, you know, one of the things that. Many people have said this um, since uh, news of uh, the death, but one of the things that always struck me about Philip Seymour Hoffman was even when he was playing kind of terrible people, you never forgot that they were people. Um, and I think this goes to what you were saying, Jordan, about him really embodying all of his roles. Like the, I think his great strength as an actor was kind of imbuing each of the roles that he played with this overwhelming sense of humanity, um, which not many people are able to do. Um, a lot of times it's, you know, this actor as this, this character, but um, the way that Philip Seymour Hoffman really kind of moved into each of those roles is something that was incredibly admirable. Um, something that struck, strikes me, um, you know, much much smarter, much better people have written about his work um, and everything that he, like his legacy. And what strikes me is um, something kind of coming out of this is the fact that he had seven days of filming left on the last uh, Hunger Games movie. And the fact that they're going to CGI recreate him for the scenes rather than rewriting the movie, recasting the role... Um, they're going to digitally remaster him into the remaining scenes. I don't know if anybody else read about that. I did. Yeah. Um, but I think that that in and of itself kind of shows, I mean, obviously it's a huge blockbuster movie. They can't really go back and reshoot with a completely new actor, but, um, and we, and we don't know exactly, <coughs> I mean, we don't know exactly what they're like. They might just need him to be physically yeah. like in scenes. Um, so. so I think that'll be really interesting to see, especially coming off of this fact that, you know, like what always got me about Philip Seymour Hoffman was how human he always managed to be. It'll be kind of strange to see this last performance filled out by a not human Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, which is something that just struck me. Um, obviously, it's what the movie needs to do to move forward, um, and I'm not going to begrudge them that, but it just seems so kind of strange um, in a way that somehow like makes sense and is indicative of his career and like the complete sort of 
you know, that dichotomy between the terrible, terrible character, but the incredibly human character that he played all the time. I don't know. This is getting kind of rambly, but um, it was definitely super sad news. Much has been said of the way that he died. Um, and I think that um, it once again shows his humanity. Um, I was reading a piece from NPR where the writer, um, who is the daughter of two addicts, made a comment about um, addiction being the great equalizer. And I think that, um, you know, it really comes to bear here. Um, a man who was so great at portraying humanity on the screen, proving or showing the depths of his humanity as a person in real life. Um, it was definitely sad. Um, and he will be missed, as Jordan said. Yeah, talk about rambling. I feel like I always think about actually writing something when we're, when we're going to do a, a eulogy because um, I want to get my feelings down right. But I also feel like the last thing I want to do is sound scripted when I'm talking about some someone who meant a lot to me. So I feel like blathering on a little bit is, is almost <clears throat> necessary uh, when we do something like this just to, to get a lot out there. Um, Chris, let's turn to you. Uh, I think that really struck me when I heard the news was just realizing how few of his really great roles that I had seen. Not that I think there are many weak roles in his catalog, but like most of his turn as a leading man, I haven't really had the chance to watch yet. So that's going to be very sort of bittersweet going back and just really discovering like the moments where he really got to shine in terms of like really having the spotlight to himself. That's not going to be fun. I mean, it's something I really want to do now, but it's like not going to be a very pleasant experience just knowing that he was an actor. I always kind of felt like his greatest roles were still ahead of him. So I think it's kind of especially sad in that way that we only have, I think, what is it like four more film Seymour Hoffman films to be released now, maybe five. Um, And, that's just going to be it. And it's definitely, it's, it's something you never want to hear, especially with an actor as talented as him. And I, yeah, I, I just don't really, it was something I didn't believe when I first heard. And it's just something that's still like is in the back of my mind is it just doesn't really feel real quite yet, but he will definitely be very missed. He was, he was an incredible talent and, yeah, I'm definitely rambling right now, but it's just there's just not much more I can think I can say that hasn't been said by you guys. Samuel. Um, well, when I first when I first heard it, I I, I, don't, I can't remember being as sad to hear um, of the of the death of really any actor, just because really for selfish reasons, and I think we probably all thought this at some point with hearing about Philip Seymour Hoffman dying, is that think about all the movies that he's not going to be in uh, and all of the movie, all the performances he's not going to make that, you know, he should have had 30 more years of performances and look what he's done in just the last 10 or 15 years. And you knew he was going to be working constantly for a long, long time. And to hear this selfishly as a, uh, as a film fan, I was incredibly sad that I feel like this was just kind of yanked away. And then after that, I kind of looked back on like, on just on how diff like if if you want to just he's he's basically the perfect uh, character actor. I mean, look at all the different roles he he was able to play from the Big Lebowski. He was able to play villains in like Mission Impossible, and he played you know he played a baseball manager somehow, and he was in the Hunger Games. I mean, he was all over the place, and there was this. There was this constant that he he never, you know. Sometimes I think you can watch a movie and see like this guy is doing it for the paycheck, or this person's you know above doing this, and you know they don't they don't really need to be here because they're that good. He he never felt like he was above doing anything, and that's an ultimate compliment. In that he always brought his A game, and it was he you know his craft was so important to him. Um, 
And there, you know, I've seen a lot of his movies that he's in, but he works so much. There are a ton that I still have to go back and watch. And even the ones that aren't supposed to be such great movies, you know, he he brings something special to the role. And I feel like I'm looking forward to going back and watching Doubt or Charlie Wilson's War or Mission Impossible 3. I'm looking forward to going back and watching those movies and just kind of seeing how great he is, even if the movie itself wasn't that amazing. And then there are, of course, like the roles that I think will define him. I, for me, I actually, I think even though he didn't win an Oscar for it, I think he, when we look back in 10, 20, 30 years, I feel like his role in The Master will be his defining role. I think it was his best performance, even though he did deservingly win the Oscar for Capote. Um, I think his role in The Master is just going to kind of grow and grow. Um, it was it was so powerful, and anytime he was on screen, he had to play someone who you can believe be, was a cult leader, and you can believe that people wanted to follow. And I wanted to follow him. He was so good. He was like, he had me. Um, and you know, of course, I'm I'm interested to see, and kind of sad. To, I'm I'm kind of dreading seeing the last few movies uh, he shot, whether it's The Hunger Games or I think he had some. Uh, a movie go to Sundance. Um, he's in a movie called a movie called God's Pocket and a Most Wanted Man. Um, and he was supposed to be in a TV series for Showtime, which I'm sure would have been amazing. Yeah, um, basically playing a misanthrope, which I'm sure he would have been excellent at. Um, and then after thinking about all the movies he was in, I thought about you know this was a real person and this is someone who struggled with addiction and he, you know, he sought help and, you know, ultimately, you know, it killed him and, you know, he's a dad and he has little kids and it's important to remember that he's like a human being. And I know sometimes when when we talk about actors, it's like, Oh, now he's not going to be in this or who's going to fill his role in this or how are they going to finish filming this? And it's like, uh, some a bunch of kids' dad just died, and it's horrible, and he was so young. Uh, so it's important to remember him as a as a human being too, and it, as well as being an amazing actor. And I'm I'm kind of looking, well, not looking looking forward is not the right words, but I'm I'm curious to hear, you know, the tribute he gets at the Oscars. I'm hoping to hear from, you know, people people who have worked with him, like Amy Adams might have big nights and Amy Adams. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see Paul Thomas Anderson or someone who was kind of his director, um, have, you know, maybe speak a little bit about his life. Um, I'll be curious to see that, but yeah, this just feels like uh, a robbery. It absolutely does. And someone's robbing someone right now. It sounds like (laughs) that was uh, Chris doing sound effects. But yeah, this sucks. This is the worst. Yeah, I didn't. I, I when I saw it on Twitter, I wished it was one of those stupid Twitter hoaxes, and it wasn't. So, yeah. Um, so now that we've we've spoken, I think a little bit more broadly, I did want to go through and talk about great roles and our uh, some of our favorite moments. Sam, you already mentioned uh, a couple of them that you love. Um, so. Why don't we Why don't we talk, Chris? What are some of your favorite Phillips uh, and Hoffman roles? Well, uh, as I will say again, I really haven't seen a lot of the films he's done. Unfortunately, I've only seen some of the movies where he's had uh, very meaningful supporting roles. Um, I think. Uh, I, I think I just like to remark about how much comedy he could also like i think he's gonna be remembered for his more serious dramatic roles but i think it's also important to remember like just what a comedic talent he was too from like a serious like like a big supporting role in something like being the best part of along came polly or um something like uh charlie wilson's war again like very much the best part of not so much a great movie i saw that and really his uh moments are really the only thing I actually find memorable about Charlie Wilson's war. So he really, he really gave it his all, I think. And just no matter what role he was in, he really just was a presence in any role he had, even if it was just a little bit of a bit part. And I think there's like a period of years where it's like, there is at least a small appearance by Philip Seymour Hoffman in pretty much any movie you can pick at random. And 
he he's just he could do it all. And I think if you just like scroll down the list of movies in IMDb and like look at the range of tones and the types of characters he played in those movies, it's just it's it's a really impressive body of work. Uh, yeah, absolutely, Rachel. The role that will always stick out to me, it's one of those little ones that he did, but it's almost famous, um, which is probably among my favorite movies. Um, And he plays Lester Bangs, this kind of last bastion, as he sees himself, of standing up for real rock and roll. And he's just so great in that. Like, there's so much that's so great about that movie. But um, that's always been a bright spot for me. I definitely agree with Chris on his comments about uh, Charlie Wilson's War. Um, And then another one that sticks out for me in a movie that I didn't really like the first, I don't know, three times I had to see it, uh, is Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which um, uh, obviously Jordan and Sam remember that that was a final movie that we had to work on for like a final for um, our first film class together, the three of us. And um, I hated it. (laughs) I hated it so much. But, and I had to see it like three times to be able to write the paper on it. And no matter how much I hated it, I think that part of why I hated it as much as I did and wasn't just ambivalent towards it was actually because of the performance that Philip Seymour Hoffman gave. he was, the character was just such a thoroughly despicable character, but it was played with such force that I couldn't just not, like, like I couldn't just give up on the movie. Like, I couldn't just forget the movie. Um, and so it was one of those that I saw it the three times, I wrote about it, and I actually saw it again relatively recently, and um, I'm still struck by that performance. Um because it's one of those that many people are talking about now where the character is just a thoroughly despicable character, but the performance um, definitely does something. Um, I haven't seen The Master, but um, because the cultishness kind of freaked me out about it. Um, but reading now about the role um, in terms of the his full oeuvre, um, I'm gonna, I really want to go back and watch it, um, much like Chris talked about, because it sounds... Uh, kind of incredible. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, it definitely is. And also, you know, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead was directed by Sidney Lumet, who directed... We're going to talk about later. Serpico, yeah. Yeah. Serpico. So, nice connection. Um, I'm glad no one mentioned what I think is my favorite of his performances. Um, although I'm not actually surprised, because I guess it's not necessarily as well-known, though I think all you know it. Um, Synecdoche, New York. Yeah. Yeah. Which basically requires him to play the entire gamut. Sometimes he's playing sort of bleak comedy. Sometimes he's playing this higher drama. And and he plays sort of the entire scope of an artist's life over the course of that movie. And um, it, it's, it's an incredible movie, and it's a completely spellbinding performance. And I think it's a difficult, it's a difficult role to play well, um, which is true of a lot of his... Uh, roles. Rachel, you talked before The Devil Is Your Dad. Another one I wanted to mention was Doubt, where he plays mm-hmm. a character that is really hard to play uh, with the right the right mixture of sort of smarminess and humanity, um, and he just nails it. But I think The Next Key New York is, to me, the one I'll always think of when I think of how phenomenal he was as an actor is that movie, and the way that he, he was able to transform as his character evolved and, and in some ways devolved, and just play the character at every different level as he was falling in and out of love and and inspired and feeling not inspired and, and sort of having writer's block and just just c- capturing it all. Um, so if I, if I had to pick one to remember him by, I think it'd be that. Although I think, Sam, you mentioned The Big Lebowski, which he's amazing in. Um, also, Boogie Nights and Magnolia, I don't think we've mentioned yet that he is, I mean, he's phenomenal in both of them. He's sort of smaller roles in each, but I think he makes both of those characters sort of resonate off the screen like he does all of his characters. Um, and Lester Bangs and Almost Famous, which is also probably one of my favorite movies, is just, it's just, he does so much with, with a character who's not around that much in the movie and who sort of resonates through every frame that he's not in as a result. Um, so yeah, I think, I think we, we should probably do some final thoughts now and move on to Serpico. <laughs> do I not get one? 
you talked about all yours. But yes, you can have one. Go ahead. Uh, a couple of years ago... I we started with you. Excuse me. I'm sorry. You bastard. <laughs> um, I just wanted to mention, I, I a couple of years ago, I got to see him in Death of a Salesman. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, which, which I'm was, so jealous of. Um, and I felt really lucky at the time, you know, just to see Philip Seymour Hoffman perform live in anything. But now I feel even luckier because, you know, he he was a theater, pre- like a live theater presence anyway. But now, of course, no one's ever going to see that again. And I just I feel so lucky that I got to see him in such such an iconic role. I mean, I, I feel like everybody loves Death of a Salesman. Um, that, yeah, I just I feel so lucky that I got to see him. And of course, he was amazing. And to play, you know, Willie Loman, you have to you have to have such presence. And it's such. It's it's such deep sadness and humanity in that character, and he's perfect. I mean, he is really a perfect Willie Loman. Um, he he was able to do it all, and I I wanted to bring up kind of the small roles again because he was able to do so much with little roles like in Boogie Nights or The Big Lebowski. Yeah, or even like I mean, if we want to keep talking Paul Thomas Anderson, even in Punch Drunk Love, where he has a very very small role, yeah, and like is still incredibly memorable in it. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, I, I guess any last thoughts before we sort of shut down uh, our long, blathery, sort of occasionally incoherent um, tributes to someone I think we all really, really appreciate it as an artist? I hear silence, which is a good sign. No um, yeah. I guess we'll, we'll leave it there. I mean, I don't know that, that anything we could ever say is anything close to a fitting tribute, but... We all really appreciated him, and, you know, we will miss him. So, with that, I think we should move on. And um, I feel like do something that he probably would have appreciated, which is discuss a movie we all watched together and sort of feel the ins and outs of it. So, Sam, this was your pick. Why don't you lead us into a discussion of Serpico? Sure, Serpico, 1973, directed by who we talked about, Sidney Lumet, who directed Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. That was a completely yeah. coincidental thing. As we picked Serpico many, many weeks ago. Um, I just, I picked Serpico because it's kind of, um, Al Pacino has always been kind of like this enigma to me in that he's such a respected actor, but outside of The Godfather, he's always just been kind of this crazy guy. And that's partly because I just haven't seen a ton of Al Pacino roles. And this is kind of one of his defining roles. And I think it's, it's a very t- uh, prototypical 70s movie in that it's kind of this gritty New York story. Um, and I think Sidney Lumet does an excellent job um, directing this film. And it also has a great script, I think. It's kind of, I think it's kind of considered one of those teachable scripts. Um, and this is just, it's, some, it's also a story that's kind of, and a character that's kind of permeated pop culture. And I've seen it, I've seen it parodied, uh, in some places, um, lots of jokes about people wearing beards being called Serpico. Um, and so I guess, uh, I'll just kick this off by asking, what did you guys think? Jordan, I'll start with you. I like the movie. What did you think? I, I really liked the movie. Um, I think, we will talk probably about all the specifics later. So I'll start by saying like Pacino was fantastic. And I just kept thinking about the movie, like, Oh, right. This is what he was like in his pre ham phase. Um, and I think he's been great even in, even since he's sort of gone into the hammy crazy roles. Like I, I think particularly of angels in America and things like that. He's still been good, but Pacino in the seventies, man, <laughs> it was a, it was, it was a completely different level that he was working on that. And he's phenomenal in the movie. Um, what really struck me and you, you talk about the script, I really liked the way that it approached telling the story because it tells a, a story over about yes, a it's so good at this. I was going to bring this up too, yeah. And yeah, it's it's phenomenal. It, it doesn't feel like a, a biopic that's rush, rushing through all the details. It sort of has this elliptical way of of weaving in the narrative and sort of it it lets you watch as a, as a pattern in his life emerges, um, and it sort of gets at the character and at the scope of all that he was involved in in his life without beating you over the head with uh, the importance of any of it. And sort of, it sort of, it feels like you're seeing slices of life uh, from, from, you know, this period in, in Serpico's life, as opposed to, uh, you know, most Hollywood biopics that feel like here are the things you need to know about this person. Uh, so I thought that was really phenomenal. Um, again, like 
We'll probably talk about all the other things I liked about it later, but that's one of the things I wanted to highlight starting off. Sure. Uh, Chris, what'd you think? Yeah, I liked it a lot. Um, I it, it felt... It was one of those movies that was very satisfying to finally watch because it's it's like one of those things that you're kind of like culturally aware of, but it's if it's a blind spot for you, it's sort of like a lot of more things kind of click into focus once you finally see it. Um, I definitely agree with your comments on the script. Uh, I, I loved just how well it was able to convey the frustration of the character in just like like this kind of um repetitive nature of the problems he would run into just like you the viewer sort of like kind of after a while sort of like felt trapped in that same cycle that serpico himself was like experiencing from like transition to transition from department to department and yeah no it was it was just a masterful acting job like uh, like across the board like a very very solid film and one that i'm glad i finally got around to seeing rachel yeah, I was also really struck by like the pacing of the narrative. Um, it does cover a lot of ground and more ground than you necessarily realize it's covering um, at the time, I guess. That sounds kind of silly, but um, it moves along just at this, this clip that's so interesting. Um, and it's, a, it's like it's a kind of like strangely quiet film in that like, a lot is done with very little in terms of like what is said. Um, but I couldn't imagine another word getting shoved into that movie at all. And it's really powerful. Um, and kind of seeing the arc that he follows. Um, I don't know. It also seems like a quintessentially New York movie in that like I've very often said that New York City is a – I mean, I'm not the only one who said this, but New York City is a city that can like – swallow you whole and then spit you out completely different um i always attributed that quote to you actually thanks thanks chris yeah thanks. yeah i've i've always said um but yeah and then i don't know and then you're hit with that like really heavy like end card and it's like he's living somewhere in switzerland and you're just like okay like ouch like ouch! Like that, it's, a, it's, it's a movie that hurts in like the best way possible, I guess. And um, I really enjoyed it. And especially, was it Jordan who said, you know, made a comment about Pacino in the seventies? And like, when you think about like just what he was making during that time period, like Godfather, Serpico, Godfather Two, Dog Day Afternoon, like the man could have not made movies ever again and still been a legend. Um, and it's all, it was just, I, I really liked it. And I was kind of sad that it take, it took me that long to see it. But um, thanks, Sam, for making us watch it. Yeah, that's why we have Movie Club. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so other things we wanted to discuss. Sam, are there other specific things you wanted to a ask us or talk about? I think we may have lost Sam. Do we? Uh-oh. Ah, we may be having technical difficulties with Sam. I'll try to track him down. In the meantime, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the direction of the film. Sydney Lumet, someone who... Uh... Sorry, I'm I'll, trying I'll to get Sam you, back. You um, he's someone... Yeah. Oh, thanks, Chris. He's someone who I've always... like. He's always considered a great director, and I've always... like I've loved a lot of his movies without ever necessarily feeling like I, I connected with him well as a director. Um, I read his book, Making Movies, actually, a couple months ago. Um, not, not connected with our selection of Serpico, strangely, but I read his book, and uh, he talked a lot about the way he made choices and the reasons he made the choices he made in, in various movies. And I like watching Serpico today, I, I, I don't know that I necessarily connected with, with Lumet as a director, and yet I, I feel like every choice he made in the movie was really powerful and really worked to... to convey the arc of the movie and what the movie was about um, through the direction. So, I don't know. I, I have a weird relationship with Sidney Lumet, and I haven't seen a lot of his movies, so maybe when I see more of them, I'll, I'll, I'll figure out what exactly it is that, that he does as a director, but... I think that part of what's great about Lumet, though, is that, like, what he does as a director, it's really multifaceted. Like, for instance, did you know that Sidney Lumet directed The Wiz? I did. Like, I read this book about all the movies he made. I just said that. <laughs> you know what, Jordan? Enough. 
But I mean, going from, you know, 12 Angry Men to something like Serpico, um, you know, more like Before the Devil Knows You're Dead was his last film. Um, but with things like The Wiz kind of sprinkled in there, um, it's it's really interesting to me. And, you know, his the pacing question is another thing that like I would have brought up in terms of talking about like dog day afternoon um, where I just think he's really good at like pulling those pieces of a story together in a way that is like sort of breakneck, but not like, not like, I don't know. It's very, it's very interesting. And yeah. And the way that he handles justice and corruption just in general um, is very impactful. Um, and I, I don't know. I'm not sure really what else to say about that. And just in that, I think the movie was really well done, really well performed, really well directed, um, kind of across the board. Um, and when you have a powerhouse like Lumet directing a powerhouse like Pacino, um, it's not surprising that the results are um, fantastic. So you mentioned the two of them paired. Um, I haven't seen Dog Afternoon. Have either of you? Yes. Um, I have not. Can you can you talk a little bit about that, just in terms of how how they work in that movie and whether that gave you any insight into this because neither Chris or I have seen it. And so maybe we're missing some aspect of the, of the relationship. So what's interesting with dog day afternoon is it obviously puts Pacino on the other side, right? Like Serpico, you have him trying to be like, but strangely not. Um, (laughs) Because in Serpico, you have, you know, the officer Serpico trying to clean up the police force. Um, in this very strange kind of eccentric way. Um, but ultimately he is so full of this movement towards justice, um, that it like ultimately winds up completely fucking him and he knows it. Um, but he doesn't stop. Um, and that there's something to be said for that in dog day afternoon. He's on the other side. He's a bank robber. Um, and he's robbing a bank for, um, well, yeah, I, I mean, uh, I know the basic plot of the movie, reason. but yeah, we won't um, spoil it here for people who I'm haven't seen it, it for press if you don't know. But somehow, strangely, the moral arc of the character that's still bends towards too, justice right? in <laughs> Dog Day Afternoon. Also a Rachel Carter original. Yeah, guys, I'm really winning today. Um, in a way that's really interesting, and, and both of them have that same sort of like super... New York super gritty feel um and in both cases the Pacino performance is out of this fucking world like just crazy amazing um I saw Dog Day Afternoon in a particular the first time I saw Dog Day Afternoon was in a particularly great way I think um it was screened on the green um so it was like hundreds and hundreds of people out on the National Mall in DC it was hot as shit because it was summer in DC and it was kind of amazing, um, actually. Uh, so I, for anybody who can't, you know, remake that experience to see it for the first time, um, sucks to be you. But you should still see it because the movie is great. Um, I knew going into Serpico, considering the parallels, that um, Serpico was going to be great as well. Um, and it is. It's and it's an interesting dichotomy because you have like it, it's something as you know the break being like a movie about a cop to a movie about a bank robber, but the similarities once you see them are so striking, um, just in terms of the inner workings of the character and the way that the films feel. I, I mean, um, I, I all want to track down Dog Afternoon in the very near future. At this they're point fantastic. Because, you should uh, I Dog really like this, and like I said, having read that book, I've been. I've been meaning to see more of, of Lumet's movies just because um, I, I've loved... There's not one I've seen that I haven't really liked, so um, I'm sure I'll do that in the near future. The one thing I wanted to talk about also before we wrap this up is Serpico was a character, because I think the things with the fact it sort of balances well, I think, um, sort of this character who could very easily be portrayed as a saint, and I think in a lesser movie would be portrayed as a saint, and sort of the things that are very frustrating about him and the ways that he's actually a flawed individual. Um, and I think, I think that makes for a much more satisfying story than, than the version of this movie that I, I imagine could very easily have been made under someone other than uh, Lumet. Um, so what did you guys think about the way that, that the film portrayed Serpico as a character? Mm-hmm. 
it, it definitely kept it from having that sort of uh sort of like a preachy quality that I think a lot of like issue-based biopics kind of stray into from time to time. Um, I, I think emphasizing his own personal failings and his obsessive nature definitely gave, it definitely made it feel more like a narrative rather than something that had like a very clear agenda, not necessarily saying that police corruption is bad, is like an agenda, but at the same time, it, it definitely made the movie I feel more accessible and feel more uh, whole and satisfying as a work of art rather than something that was simply like a, this is what police, this was what New York City was like in this period of time um, wasn't this bad yeah uh, definitely Rachel did you have any any particular thoughts on on that on Superco as a character hmm. um, yeah I mean I think that the movie never feels preachy, right? Like, never... Like, and he's always kind of quiet about it. And even in the moments where he... there's, You kind of see a flicker of self-righteousness. Something will happen that, like, brings it down. And his response to it will um, kind of, like, temper the reaction to that. Um, like, the moment that really got me was when he bought the dog from those junkies. Like... There are two, for, you know, movie clubbers who haven't watched the movie, when the, he's moving into his new apartment and there are these two people sitting out front and they're clearly on something just by the way that they're shaking and the way that they cling to that $5 when he hands it to them. And, and he takes that, he like, they, they're like, oh, you could have one for free. Like, they're just so desperate to get rid of it. And he's like, no, no, I'll pay for it. Like, I don't know, that like, it's, and just generally speaking, throughout the film, he, like, really loves animals. Like, he's got his little mouse partner, and at one point he's feeding a parrot, and it's... That was a fascinating scene. Sort of movie in microcosm, <laughs> yeah. but you're taking it in very interesting ways. Um, yeah, I think yeah. Uh, you both hit on the fact the movie doesn't get preachy, and I kind of kept waiting for it, because he's this, you know, cop on a very corrupt force who refuses to take payoffs and is very, like... And he grows a Jesus beard as the movie goes on. And yet, still, it very studiously avoids painting him as, like, this perfect saint. And I think it does that very well with the way it looks at his romantic relationships and the way that, like, he probably was not a very easy person to be around on the force at work um, because everyone else was corrupt. But also in his romantic relationships where he was sort of single-minded and had a terrible temper and um, tended, tended to not... Uh, give the women in his life what they needed. Um, and I thought the way that, that they sort of showed us the cycle of his romances, and they were, you know, we see a couple of them over the course of the movie, and that never felt intrusive, and it never felt like it was pulling away from the rest of the story. It just felt like we were getting a better idea of how this man operates in and out of work. Yeah, I also like that we only really ever see the romantic interests in... In, in, in like a lens through him like I, I think in a different movie a criticism of the film would have been like how poorly drawn his um, the two women he was involved with were and just like how little of a character they were in relation to him but I think that that really is effective here in just like kind of showing you the cost that his obsessive nature like this this Ahab-esque quest he has just takes on his life and that they're really just there in the background they're really just there to suffer it like as just his punching bag like the one thing that he can kind of just like vent on like constantly they're just there to be uh like we we see them there as on the periphery of this thing that has absolutely consumed him as a character in this aspect of his life that should be so much more central so much more um so much more of like what like like you you kind of get the sense that like what he's looking for like he he's he's not he he keeps saying that he doesn't want to be a crusader and he just wants to do his job whereas i think we can like question how much of that is really truth but if that is the case then shouldn't his relationship shouldn't his end goal be just like being able to like hold down this job so he can just have this like life that he's trying to build for himself so the fact that we only ever see the women in his life in these small scenes on the periphery uh, and we know so little about them other than how 
uh, Serpico's obsessions are affecting them as well as they're affecting him really emphasizes just how consuming this became. And again, like speaks to these flaws that I think makes the character and yeah, the story definitely. itself so much more effective. Um, so we're, we're reaching the point where we should probably close things up. Uh, I want to go around and do last thoughts. Um, anyone have any last thoughts on Serpico before we close her down? Uh, I, I just want to like remark in here that like um, it, it was very interesting to watch a movie where we were repeatedly a lot where we were repeatedly shown crazy Pacino, but it was like a contained crazy Pacino, which is not something you see very often these days and not that you can really compare 70s Pacino to like modern Pacino, but it, it was very interesting to see a performance where he could continually fly off the handle but you've it felt real. It felt driven. It felt like it came from a place of truth rather than just like a montage that would like like montage fodder, I guess. It wasn't is the best gratuitous. Word for it. Yeah, exactly. Like it worked. It was there for a reason and I think that um, And he did it well. Yeah, and I think that that's something that um sets Lumet films apart in that everything feels kind of like controlled chaos um and it's like it's pretty amazing when it's not many people can do it um and it's pretty impressive um and also i was going to try to be funny and say that this film was um worth watching yeah we we can't leave this thing pacino's facial hair um (laughs) yeah because he goes from you know it's the opening scene of the film is him he's been shot in the face and he's bloodied and you don't you that's right where you enter like that's right where you come in so like you know the trajectory that he's on basically um as you watch the entire film but it goes from that scene bloodied bearded to like him all clean shaven and naive coming out of his um like graduation from the police academy. Um, and then, you know, like his facial hair even like causes friction with his bosses at one point. And he goes from like that clean shaven to the mustache to the full beard. And it, it is you're, like, you're right. Like it, it got very Jesus beardy. Um, and his, you know, tendency to wear sandals doesn't help either. But um, it, I don't know. It was just like very interesting in that like, over the course of the film, he plays so many different characters kind of contained in that one. Um, and I, it's just, it's very compelling. I almost, you would think that it would be over the top to have like the beard sort of, like the facial hair be a large part of the character arc in terms of how he defines himself um, as a, like part of the collective and part of the force. And then further and further into like this outsider role and this outsider perspective, and the you know the further outside he feels from the force, the bigger the beard gets, and the more he looks like a hippie, as they call him throughout the movie. Um, you'd think that would be over the top, but it never felt like that to me, which is really impressive. I, I also like the one little moment of sort of like self-aware humor in the arc of the facial hair, where it's like I guess he was coming in from being undercover as. Uh, like, like an orthodox Jewish man and he, he the beard is even more impressive but then he takes it off and you see it's, it's just like a fake beard I, I, I kind of thought that was just like a little bit of self-awareness to what was going on there I thought that was funny yeah I liked that also I was reading today uh, I don't think this was actually in, in the book that I read but I was reading today that in preparation for this segment that they shot the film in basically reverse order so that he could like trim his hair down as they went on Oh, Which makes funny. the performance even more impressive to me. Yeah. Um, all right, we should probably shut her down now. But before we close the movie club out, uh, we got we have to announce our next movie club pick. And Chris, it is your turn to do that. So why don't you let us know what we'll be doing next time on movie club? Okay, so next time on movie club, I believe none of us have seen this selection. But please correct me if I am wrong. But we are going to do a film from 2008 called Ip Man, which is the beginning of a three-part trilogy that just finished up in 2013. Have either of you guys seen Ip Man? No. I nope. saw I saw The Grand Man last year, which was about Ip Man, but from, I think, a very different perspective than Ip Man. Okay, cool. Uh, so yeah, let's do Ip Man. All right. And... As usual, we will do that roughly uh, three to four podcasts from now. Sometimes 
big events or whatever push us out of the way and we have to rearrange it. But sometime in the vaguely near future and much sooner than we followed up uh, our last election with Serpico, we will talk about Ip Man. Uh, Chris, it's available on Netflix, right? It is. Uh, and if movie club goers enjoy Ip Man, the other two entries in the trilogy, I think, are also streaming on Netflix. Excellent. Well, I can't yes. promise that I will watch all three before a movie club, but if I watch the first one and like it, maybe I'll try to watch all three so I can throw some commentary in there. Sounds good. Um, all right. With that, I think we should shut down the show. Um, as always, you can let us know what you're thinking about the podcast or any other aspect of the website at the website, which is reviewname.com. You can follow us on Twitter at reviewnamed. You can email us at reviewnamed at gmail.com. Um, we are actually accepting ant delivered messages at this point. Uh, we no more carrier pigeons, but if you want to get a collection of ants together to carry over a note to us, we'd be happy to accept that. Um, and yeah, just let us know what you're thinking. Let us know what you like, what you hate, etc. And with that, this has been the Review Name Podcast. I have been Jordan, and Paco, everybody loves you. I love you. Thank you.